vision for life. I wonder if anyone can recognize this person who's kicking in here. Can anyone tell me who that is? That is Muhammad Ali. Yes, Cassius Clay, that's right, one. Originally named Cassius Clay, more famously known as Muhammad Ali. Famous boxer, famous for his boxing feats, but not just for his boxing feats, famous for the showmanship that went along with his boxing, his whole persona. It led to several memorable quotes, didn't it? Sure, some of you can call them to mind, you know, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. And perhaps his most famous one, which is more of a boast than just a quote, I am the greatest. I am the greatest. And the thing is, though, about Muhammad Ali is he proved it. He proved it. He was the greatest. He was the most dominant heavyweight boxer of his generation. Just ask poor George Foreman, who memorably was beaten by Ali in the famous rumble in the jungle in Zaire. And we might say, What's, what was Muhammad Ali's vision for life? How might we de- describe that? Well, we might say that Muhammad Ali's vision for life was to be the greatest boxer ever. But it wasn't just to be a great boxer, a great sports person. It was to be great in general. It was everything that went along with that. It was adulation. It was glory. And he believed that. He truly believed that deep down. That's how he saw himself. And he pursued that goal. He pursued that vision relentlessly. Everything else in his life was there to serve that ambition, to serve that vision for life of success, of adulation, of glory. And I think, you know, the same can be said of most professional athletes. The same can be said really of anyone who rises to the top of their field. Now, you may never aspire to that level of achievement or acclaim, but the fact is, Everyone has a vision for life. Every one of us does. What you think your life should look like and how you think your life should end up looking like that. And I think for many people in the world, well, for everyone really, for everyone, while we might frame it differently to Muhammad Ali, why it might be, while it might be a little more modestly expressed, our default visions for life are similarly self orientated we may not aim for greatness in a particular field but we don't want to have a great life maybe it's in the area of relationship for you maybe you have a particular vision for your life in the area of relationship finding the right life partner having kids maybe it's a vision for the work that you do finding a successful job one that's personally enjoyable and fulfilling and which pays well. Maybe it's in your lifestyle. You have a vision. You envision owning your own home or renovating your home so it's just right for you. Or having experiences like traveling. Or just having, just attaining a particular level of personal comfort. You know, nothing too grand. Just, just want to be comfortable. I have a vision for that. And I think the question for us, since we are all here at a church on a Sunday morning, the question for us is, how does all that gel with the life of Christian discipleship? What sort of vision for life should the Christian believer have? Is it possible just to have the life I just described, or at least parts of it, and just add Jesus in? 
Is that your ideal vision of the Christian life? Yes, he's an important part of that life. He's a big part, but he's just one part among these other parts, these other visions that I have for my life. I think that's a vision of the Christian life that many of us here in comfortable Sydney find very appealing and which many, I dare say, are living. Is that... Is that the vision for life of the Bible? What if that isn't the vision of, the, of life of the, of the Bible? We're continuing our way through the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church, as Mike said. And in the passage before us, what we see Paul doing is casting a particular vision for life. One that pushes back against what we might call the Muhammad Ali vision for life. The vision for life that makes us and our desires and our ambitions the center of everything. And this is much more widespread, I think, than we would like to admit. Paul's point is that the Christian life inherently and necessarily doesn't operate that way. How can it? How can it? If God is real and you come to that realization that God is real and you submit to Him and His Lordship as the Creator, as the Sustainer of life, as your personal Saviour, then by extension, you are saying that you are no longer the most significant reality in your life. You can't be. God has to be. And that's the biblical vision for life. The biblical vision reorients human ambition and desire and confidence. Instead of us and our desires and our ambitions being at the center of everything, God and His desires and His ambitions are at the center of everything. And what this means in in real lived-out terms, is that Christian living is synonymous with Christian ministry. That is, to be a Christian believer is to be a Christian minister. And you can see that right in the middle of the passage before us. In verse 6 of chapter 3, we see Paul writing, He has made us ministers. He's made us ministers. And elsewhere in the passage, he speaks at length about our ministry. He uses this inclusive language. Now, it's tempting, I think, to read this and to think that Paul is just speaking about professional ministers. Guys like Mike and me who do this for a living, full time. And he is speaking to people like that. After all, Paul himself was a full time apostle, someone set aside, dedicated to church leadership. But he is also speaking to all Christians. He's addressing the entire Corinthian church, remember? Not all of them were leaders in that church. But all of them were believers. All Christian believers should have this vision for life because all Christians, by virtue of their faith in Christ, have had the orientation of their lives shifted from ourselves to God. And now before, you know, alarm bells go off, Paul isn't saying that everyone who's a Christian, everyone here right now who's a Christian believer has to stop life, suddenly enroll at Moore College or SMBC or YouthWorks College. He's not saying that. But what Paul is saying is that when you are captured by the truth of who God is and what glorious thing He has done for you and for all existence in Christ then everything you do and say, everything about your life will inherently point people to God once you're captured by that. In other words, your life becomes ministry, a service 
to God for the eternal benefit of others. That's the point of Paul's captivity illustration in verse 14 of chapter 2. What does he say there? But thanks be to God who always puts us on display in Christ and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Paul's referring to the practice that victorious Roman generals had of leading a procession through the streets of Rome, putting on display the spoils and captives of war. Incense would be burned and the aroma would waft about upon those who are part of the procession, anyone who came to view the procession. And Paul is saying that he is one of those captives, that he is a captive of God. And like the chief captive, Christ himself, he goes where God leads, doing God's will. And as he does so, he's on display, spreading the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. And this God-centeredness, as you may have picked up from the, the metaphor, it, it comes with a not insignificant degree of suffering and humiliation. It's to a world that naturally views the person of God with hostility and rejection and scorn. And so while to some our lives of ministry, of sharing the good news of Jesus, will be as an aroma of life, to others, Paul says, we will be an aroma of death. You ever smell something that's died? Maybe a rat that died behind a skirting board and you uncover it? I used to drive around in my previous work with the ministry quiz works a lot around the place. We would drive in outback areas in like Queensland where it gets to 45 degrees regularly. And have you ever driven by roadkill that has been baking in the sun for days and days? As you approach it on these long highways, you can smell it kilometres away in the car. It becomes overwhelming as you draw near it. And then even as you pass it, it takes a kilometre or so for the scent